Basel III endgame will make it harder for consumers to buy a house or a car. It'll hurt the small businesses that rely on loans to grow, and it'll reduce savings for people with money in pension funds. Regulators propose capital requirements would take a toll on families, seniors, farmers, and small businesses. Washington, scrap Basel III endgame and start over. The really interesting thing about influential and powerful staffers like the parliamentarian is reporters can't source with these folks. That's Alana Shore. Congressional editor at Politico. She's covered Congress for years, and she's never met Elizabeth McDonough face-to-face. Reporters are constantly reaching out to both parties to find out about their meetings with someone like Elizabeth McDonough. Because it's just not in the parliamentarian's job description or blood to go near the press. And that's kind of how it should be, frankly. But it just, it enhances her power, if anything. I'm Scott Bland, and this is Nerdcast. So today, news. Congressional budget reporter Caitlin Emma has been watching and waiting. And waiting. Not fun. To see how the parliamentarian ruled. Caitlin, in, in 10 seconds, can you tell me what went down on Thursday? Or really, what didn't? So the parliamentarian in uh, Big Blow the Democrats said that the minimum wage hike is going to violate these arcane budget rules, sort of known as the bird rule, and that could jeopardize the rest of President Joe Biden's coronavirus relief package if they leave it in. And so today we're looking not just at the parliamentarian's ruling and what it means for the future of the COVID relief package, but also what we're doing here and how we got here in the first place. So when we think of Congress, we think of the members of Congress, the actual elected officials voting and making speeches. It's a series of tubes. But there's also this massive behind-the-scenes machinery of rules and staffers and all sorts of other things that make this big branch of government work. And right at the center of that is this position that's part human encyclopedia, part historical custodian part old-timey locomotive engineer, trying to make the place run properly according to its own dusty rulebook. I'll tell you a little secret. I'm talking about parliamentarians, specifically the Senate parliamentarian. When senators are speaking from the dais and you see it on C-SPAN, you don't see Elizabeth, but she's telling them what to say. And the Senate parliamentarian's role in deciding what can go into this $2 trillion coronavirus relief package President Biden is pushing is so interesting to me because it's one of those moments that happens in Washington where the public is waiting with bated breath on this person that a lot of people didn't even really know existed. You know who did know, though? Alana Shore. So, Alana, can you describe what the Senate parliamentarian does in 10 seconds? Oh, yeah. um, Sure. Okay, I can can do this. (laughs) Three, two, one... So Elizabeth McDonough, the Senate parliamentarian, is the nonpartisan, super smart translator of Senate procedure for senators of both parties. Nice. (laughs) Okay. Elizabeth McDonough is only the sixth Senate parliamentarian ever and the first female Senate parliamentarian in history. So the parliamentarian is a position that goes back as far as the Senate does. The office of the parliamentarian derives from a few lines in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 5, for the three of you who are curious. And in a lot of ways, they're the guardians of these arcane and obscure processes that everything runs on in the Senate. You literally need unanimous consent to end the day. And the parliamentarian is in control of those rules. So she's very powerful. 
But the Senate is this old, arcane, tradition-bound place. And the Senate parliamentarian is, in some ways, a guardian of the things that make it that way. And right now we're in this moment of great tension between the old and the new, which means we're at a moment of great tension for the Senate parliamentarian. Do you remember on the campaign trail, in the Democratic primary debates, there was a lot of talk about the filibuster. Many people on this stage do not support rolling Prime back Senator. the filibuster. Thank you, Senator. Until we're ready Prime to Senator. do that, okay. we can't. Senator, I want to allow Senator. The filibuster was this frequent debate point that, you know, maybe a lot of people outside Washington might not have been paying much attention to, but for people who work in Congress, it was a signal their colleagues were saying, hey, the Senate should change up how it does things. It's like how in baseball there are proposals to change the rules when, say, pitchers got too dominant, lowering the mound or moving them farther from home plate. That sort of thing. The parallels are obvious. But here's the thing. A lot of Democrats might hate the filibuster right now, but these same current Senate rules that give the minority the power of the filibuster also give the majority a way to get around it. One weird trick to kill the filibuster, you might call it. And that's called budget budget reconciliation. reconciliation. You only need a simple majority, not the 60 votes you need to kill a filibuster, to pass budget bills under reconciliation. But guess what? There's more rules stacked on top of that rule about what can go in these specific types of bills. So, because there's still a filibuster, Senate Democrats need the walking encyclopedia, that's right, Elizabeth McDonough, the most important person in the chamber, the Senate parliamentarian, to make a ruling on whether Democrats could use reconciliation to get a $15 minimum wage in Joe Biden's $2 trillion COVID relief package. This has been a huge priority for Democrats for a number of years now. And this is their chance, even with only 50 votes in the Senate, to try and get that priority into this big bill. And by the way, deciding whether or not something like a minimum wage hike can go into one of these budget reconciliation bills is called the bird rule. It's called the quote-unquote bird bath. These discussions over what does and does not have a sufficiently significant effect on federal spending and revenues and deficits. That means Democrats have to show that their minimum wage request belongs in a budget reconciliation bill in the first place. Because the late Robert Byrd, the longtime dean of the Senate, had crafted these provisions when he was in charge. So, like I said, these arcane processes and the woman overseeing all of it has a big impact on you. There's just a lot of stuff happening at once. (laughs) Ilana and Caitlin, let's figure this out. First up, Ilana on the why and the how. Oh boy, buckle your seatbelts, everyone. We are about to get real nerdy. You're responsible for, I think, probably my single biggest moment of jealousy for a professional colleague of my career, which was your winning appearance on Jeopardy (laughs) uh, a, a few years ago. Let's dive into today. And I've been hearing, you know, in meetings and, and you know, these kind of like little little mentions in, in our newsletters and coverage, people talking about the Senate parliamentarian, the Senate parliamentarian, not something you hear about an awful lot. But then when when you do hear about and it feels like all of a sudden everyone's talking about. It. So just just what does the Senate parliamentarian do? Well, it's a really fascinating position that only occasionally gets this sort of a high profile, usually during what we call the budget reconciliation debate, right? When the parliamentarian weighs in on provisions that are and are not acceptable under the reconciliation rules. But the parliamentarian is always on duty and often consulted, you know, on a much more low-key, lower-profile level by senators on matters of parliamentary procedure. You know, in comparison to the House, 
which is kind of run with an iron fist by the majority, as we all know, thanks to our filibuster skills, right? The Senate minority has quite a lot of power and it takes unanimous consent to do everything in the Senate. So the parliamentarian is kind of kind of watching for, for any and all rules issues, basically. So they're basically like the referee, kind of, with like vast knowledge of the arcane rule book that governs all this. Like a super nerdy referee with no ability to stop the game by blowing a whistle. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, like, what do the senators think of her? Is she generally, like, well-liked? Well, the particular parliamentarian we have now, Elizabeth McDonough, is actually a really remarkable figure. Because when she got this job in 2012, it was it was a bit of a glass ceiling style moment for her as the first ever female parliamentarian. Politico's story at the time actually compared her to Melanie Griffith's character from Working Girl. There isn't any room at the top for local girls like us. I'm not giving up. Because she kind of had like a not terribly elite path to this super elite position and really found her way as, as this um, sort of scrappy Justice Department trial attorney in the upper echelons of the Senate. But senators in both parties seem to think like the world of her. And that is obvious from all coverage of her. So how does one become Senate parliamentarian? I mean, I, I know it's not easy. I did some reading and it seems like you basically have to apprentice for at least a decade and only six people have done the job in the Senate since 1935. And usually the parliamentarian is replaced by the first lieutenant since no outside hire could possibly possess the knowledge of Senate minutia that the job requires. It's a pretty exclusive club of people. To be honest, there's not a lot of historical resources that allow us to compare many parliamentarians from the past because they're just so low profile, right? I mean, in the way that the Senate historian keeps ample records on senators, we just don't have as much info on past parliamentarians. But we do know that in the House, there was a woman, Muftiya McCartan, who became the first female parliamentarian in the House years before, gosh, 1991 versus 2012, more than a decade before McDonough got there in the Senate. And McCartan was a single mother who spent 14 years climbing up from a secretary's post. So it doesn't really feel to me looking at past parliamentarians like there's quote unquote, a typical path. But we do know that McDonough and some of the women who came before her in the House took a little bit of an untypical path. So basically, like all these people are just completely steeped in in these institutions. They know them inside and out. They know kind of every every little bit about the rules that govern them, which have built up over time. Absolutely. And in McDonough's case, and I, I believe this is pretty common among parliamentarians, they're also accomplished attorneys. So I feel like we've set up who these people are and, and how they get there. And what I'm really curious about is why this matters so much. And I actually, uh, I brought up Google Trends earlier today, and I did a search for Senate parliamentarian. And you can see basically this this flat line just along zero for most of, you know, the past 15 years of no one essentially searching for Senate parliamentarian. And then right around the time of these enormous legislative battles, Obamacare, Obamacare repeal, and, and right now, mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's this big spike of people looking up information on Senate parliamentarians and what they do and who they are. And that's because they they have a lot to say about the particulars of how legislation can get passed, right? Absolutely. You know, if you look at the last moment that Elizabeth McDonough became a quasi-household name, it was 2015 during an Obamacare debate when Politico ran a story that said, meet the most important person you don't know. And as we all know, we we write for insiders, right? So she's like an insider's insider. (laughs) Though we're headlining a story that way. But yeah, it's really been more than five years, Scott, since McDonough has last broken out like this. And what was happening in, in 2015 to prompt that story? 
Back then, it was another budget reconciliation battle that was over Obamacare. And McDonough was in charge of deciding just how many provisions Republicans could stick in that package while overcoming, you know, the 60 versus 51 vote question in the Senate. Yeah, and I guess we should we should probably back up at this point, right? Because the reason this keeps coming up is because of the filibuster, not needing that 60 vote threshold to get something done. And so as you mentioned, budget reconciliation is is the way to get around that filibuster for legislation in the Senate because you can do 51 votes instead of 60. But then there are rules stacked on top of this rule about very specific things that that fit under that criteria. And, you know, what exactly you can pass in this kind of one-shot filibuster avoidance end-around that's built into the rules. And the parliamentarian has a lot of say over that. Absolutely. And, you know, here's where I confess that I covered the Senate for Politico for years, but, you know, I wasn't one of our budget gurus, right? So, you know, now that I'm the editor to our budget gurus, they tell me a really interesting thing, which is like, it's not always clear cut. You know, it's tough for me to come up with an example for you on the air right now, but according to our budget folks, like the parliamentarian can weigh in in a somewhat subjective way. To be clear, that's not a partisan way, right? But McDonough is relied upon to to read the rules, and sometimes senators disagree with her. Parliamentarians have been fired, for instance, in the past. Right. I was reading, like, uh, Trent Lott, when he was Senate Majority Leader, fired a parliamentarian basically for a ruling that he he and the Republicans were unhappy about related to this exact thing. Actually, I think maybe that was the last time there was a 50-50 Senate, too. The timeline would make sense. Yes, I believe that's right. And fun fact, that same parliamentarian had been fired in 1987 by Democrats. Can you imagine the honor of having been fired by both parties? <laughs> that's fantastic. And and some of it is like written rules, and some of it is precedent and procedure that's just kind of like naturally built up over time, like a like a geological formation, right? Uh, and And they have to have all of that kind of, they have to have command of all of that. And in addition to command, they have to have credibility with both parties, which has become an issue for other parliamentarians, but despite some criticism, not for this one. Can you take us into a few other recent moments when Elizabeth McDonough has been in the news kind of making decisions that have gotten a lot of attention? I mean, uh, you know, there was there was a recent spate of news about her around the impeachment trial, the first impeachment trial for President Donald Trump, when she was advising Chief Justice John Roberts on procedure for that trial. You know, we, we've talked about Obamacare a little bit in a couple different ways, both repeal and the crafting of it in the first place. But for all the time that the parliamentarian's office kind of runs under the radar, it seems just it, it ends up playing a big role at the biggest moments. What I found most striking about McDonough, you know, when I sort of took a deep dive into our archives to prepare for this conversation, is that during the 2015 Obamacare debate, a lot of senators didn't even know her name either. That is how low-key this woman is, you know? And and really a sign of how effective she's been, to my mind, given that it's this hothouse media environment in the past few years where absolutely every decision is scrutinized and she's making all these important calls. Um, but yes, to your point, the last time she really broke out into the public eye was during the first impeachment trial when um, she and her staff prepared to advise Roberts if Roberts had any questions while the chief justice was presiding. You know, I think it was probably that 2015 Obamacare ruling. I think Ted Cruz called for her to be fired after that and was rebuked by some of the other Republican senators and kind of, you know, it's it's just, it's, I keep going back to what you said before, it's not this partisan judgment role. It's just kind of a, a, it still seems to be a a widely respected office, uh, even as it keeps kind of like cutting down the the things that both parties would like to do at different times, at different important moments in their, in their legislative plans. 
What struck me the most in this in this deep dive through the archives was in 2020, it was noted that she has a three-person office, which, you know, when you think about how many staffers prominent senators have, that she's only got three aides, you know, making all the calls to help the chief justice during an impeachment trial. I mean, it's really staggering how intelligent these people are. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they must be they, they must have so much in their heads if they if they don't if they don't can't rely on a bigger staff just to like look something up on a moment's notice when it, when it needs to be figured out. Right. That's that's wild. Absolutely. And and to be clear, you know, it's my sense that some of these are, are kind of what we what we called in print snap rulings. Right. So it's not like you can take an hour, recess the impeachment trial and get back to the chief justice. You've got to kind of just say it. Right. You have to like take in what's happening like before you and answer the question of the, the presiding officer, basically of the Senate, right? Who's like trying to figure out what to do. Exactly. <laughs> in that moment. Yeah. There is kind of something, I don't know what the right word about this. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. It seems like a very Congress thing when I saw about this, be- because for all the power kind of imbued in the parliamentarian's office, because they rule on these Im- important things, the Senate doesn't actually have to follow their rulings, right? Just like anything else, it's a majority rules legislative body. And and when it comes to their own rules, they can vote to change them, to reset them, to override or whatever. But it's such a tradition-laden body that they really don't do that very often at all. Yes. I mean, look no further than the name of the moment when they did overrule her, the nuclear option. You know, fans of Congress will remember that when then-leader Harry Reid and later Mitch McConnell changed the rules to essentially knock down the margin for confirming certain nominees from 60 to 51, both times they were essentially overruling the parliamentarian. And, you know, she knew it was going to happen in advance, but uh, uh, again, I'm quoting Politico's coverage, McDonough called it uh, a, quote, stinging defeat that I tried not to take personally, referring to, again, both parties' previous overruling of her. So yes, you're right. Alana, thank you so much for taking the time. This is great. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Now, to better understand the mechanics of the parliamentarian's role in the COVID relief package, I'm back here with congressional budget reporter Caitlin Emma. Hi again, Caitlin. Hey, Scott. So, Caitlin, can you tell me what the parliamentarian ruled this week and how that affects the Democrats' COVID relief package? So the parliamentarian in uh, Big Blow, the Democrats, said that the minimum wage hike is going to violate these arcane budget rules, sort of known as the bird rule, and that could jeopardize the rest of President Joe Biden's coronavirus relief package if they leave it in. So, you know, if, if you're a Senate Democrat, this is this is a huge loss, right? This is something they were promising on the campaign trail that they really wanted to put in this bill. So I, it, it, they have to take it out of the package now. Right. So it's a big loss. It's a big loss for Senate Budget Chair Bernie Sanders. You know, he sort of declared victory early on this issue and said, you know, he expected a favorable ruling. Clearly, that's not the case. And in some ways, you would think it kind of gives Democrats a scapegoat to ditch a proposal that was already causing divisions within the Democratic Party, you know, so they could say, okay, like, this is a problem, we're going to take it out. You know, you've already seen Democratic leaders say, like, one way or another, we're going to tackle this, we, we just can't do it now. But there's also been some discussion among Democrats and progressives of, of finding ways to save it. So it's unclear if Democrats in the White House would pursue some sort of avenue to try and make sure that it works. At this point, probably the easiest path would be to just take it out and deal with it later. But I guess we'll have to see what happens. Well, and w- one of the things that's been so interesting to to learn about is, as I've been learning about the Senate parliamentarian this week, along with many other people, uh, is that the senators aren't actually like 100% bound by 
her decisions, right? She's interpreting Senate rules, but Senate rules are made by the senators. And so one of the things that that kind of gained traction early in, in this discussion about minimum wage and this big bill was, well, if a ruling goes against them, they could vote to overturn the parliamentarian. But that that seems to have, have kind of cooled off as an option, too. Definitely. It it really cooled off sort of early on when President Joe Biden said that he, you know, didn't want to do that. Obviously, Biden spent a lot of time in the Senate. He's sort of like a Senate institutionalist. I think he probably values precedent and preserving precedent a lot. So I think respecting the parliamentarian's opinion in this case is a very high priority for the White House. But that obviously puts, you know, folks like uh, Bernie Sanders in in a bit of a weird position, you know, because he's obviously a progressive champion and you have a lot of progressives. You know, for example, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, even as early as you know, this week saying like, why are we, why, why do we care? (laughs) Like, we don't have to listen to this at all. But because the president, you know, really wants to respect that decision, I think it's a very unlikely scenario that Democrats would, you know, just say like, screw it, we're doing it anyway. Got it. Caitlin, thanks so much for breaking it down for us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like our show, then like it. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps more people find the show. And this week, Politico launched The Recast, a brand new newsletter that breaks down how race and identity are recasting politics, policy, and power in Washington and here in the United States. To subscribe, go to politico.com and search for Recast. I'm going to be on parental leave for the next few weeks, but we've got some great shows lined up for you in the meantime. I hope you enjoy them. Thank you so much for listening.